All right, we are amplified now and uh, ready to get started on our lesson. It's good to see all of you here as we continue our study in Second uh, Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. Now, this is an unusual um, approach to a very well-known topic, but the more I read these two chapters, I realized they needed to come together and we didn't need to walk through them verse by verse or even to take just one section of one, one week and one section of the other the next week because we're going to be dealing with the second best known story about King David. The first best known story, of course, is as a young man, a boy, David conquers Goliath with his slingshot and a stone. The second most known story, I believe, is about David as king and his involvement with Bathsheba. And the problem with looking at all the details of the story about Bathsheba is we get all caught up in that, and it's not until chapter 12 that we get the actual resolution, the lesson, for why it was recorded. So we're going to take those two chapters together. And before we actually get into the lesson, one of the things that continued to occur to me as I was preparing this were those historical critical approaches that look at these records in the Old Testament and claim that they're not really historic, but instead they were something written after the kingdom was established to glorify the kings of Israel. Now, of all the things written to glorify someone, I can see David and Goliath. I cannot see David and Bathsheba. There would be no king who would really want that to be published abroad about what happened and what took place. But because I truly believe, as I think you do, that this is actual history, there was a King David, there was an ancient Israel, there was a woman named Bathsheba, and there was a man named Uriah, and also a man named Nathan, the facts are true, and they are historic, and there is a major lesson for us to learn in this. We get past sometimes the salacious interest in the whole relationship between David and Bathsheba and its results, and we forget the words of Nathan. So we'll be looking at both of these together, but before we do that, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. This is allowing us to see into your mind, to know more of who you are and what you think of us, and to also learn what we are to think of you and how to live our life in conjunction with your glory and power and majesty. We pray that through your Holy Spirit, you will guide us to understand the truth you would have each one of us know and apply in our own hearts and lives, in our own personal situations this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We know that David committed an egregious sin. We know that Nathan confronted him about that. And we know that things were resolved because of that. But the process involved in each of those taking place 
is most instructive to us in terms of how we approach our understanding of a Christian life under God's fatherhood having adopted us as his children through Christ and what happens when we fall. Chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel speak of this. The sin of David can be summarized in two very simple words. There was blatant immorality and there was devious murder. You are all familiar with the story. I'm not going to go into all the details, but apparently David stayed in the capital city of Jerusalem while uh, his army went out to fight again the Ammonites that we've looked at before, an ongoing foe of theirs. And while he was there, he saw this woman. He was up on the parapet looking down. He saw this woman on the rooftop bathing, and he wanted her. And so he gave orders for her to come to him, and as a good subject, she did. They had sexual relations. He sent her back home, and then she discovered that she was with child. At that point, David decides to be smart and bring her husband home from the war and make sure that he would go home and sleep with his wife so that he'd think the child was his. And because of Nathan's unquestioned loyalty, Nathan was, I mean, not Nathan, of Uriah's unquestioned loyalty, he was one of the 30 champion warriors of Israel. He's listed in that list. And he would not go home to be with his wife when the rest of his fellows were fighting a battle. So three times David tried to entice him to go home to his wife, and each time he would not go, but he slept there at the doorstep. And that's when David decided to be very shrewd and give orders to the commander to put this man, Uriah, in the front of the hardest part of the battle and then to pull the troops away, sure that he would be killed by the enemy. And indeed, that's what happened. Bathsheba laments the death of her husband. David consoles her with it. And then he brings her in to be another one of his wives in the castle. He thinks he's gotten away with it. He believes he's been so smart. He's been so powerful. He's been in such control of the whole situation that no one would ever guess anything happened. And then Nathan showed up. And Nathan, in verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. David forgot one thing. The Lord was watching. The Lord knew what he was doing. And the Lord spoke to Nathan to have Nathan go and confront David about what had taken place. What's behind all of these actions? Why would all of this take place to begin with? And if we take time to look carefully at what's taking place, and we also know our own natures, I think we can put together a pretty good description of why these things happened. The very first thing that happened is that David forgot who he was and what God had done for him. He was obviously very full of himself and his sense of power and might that he could have anything he wanted within the kingdom because 
He was king and everyone adored him and everyone was delighted to have him be the one in charge. But he forgot that it was the Lord who had given him the power over Goliath. It was the Lord who had saved him from Saul's relentless desire to kill him. It was the Lord who had given him the loyalty of the commanders. It was the Lord who had given him all of the wealth of the country. The Lord gave him the loyalty of all of the people of Israel and Judah. The Lord had done all of that, and we actually read in God's description to Nathan of what to tell David, God would have done even more if David had asked for it. This is in uh, chapter 12, verse 8. This is what Nathan is saying to David, the Lord had said to him, And I, the Lord, gave you your master's house, Saul, and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. In other words, David, all you had to do was ask me for what you wanted and I would grant what would be best for you. That's my summary of it. That's my mess. I'm not trying to match what one of the women in the bell choir did. You know, it's really best this is not televised any longer. (laughs) I am not illustrating a point other than human fallibility. There's a little left. I got it. Thank you. Um, that's what's going on behind this. In David's thinking, the big problem is he thinks he's in charge of his life. And he's forgotten that it was the Lord who was in charge of his life. Nathan has gotten the command from God, and so he approaches David. Now, this is a dangerous thing. This is the king. If he'd wanted to, he could just say, Nathan, I don't want to hear that. I'll have your head for this insubordination and Just plow ahead. A bad choice. Unfortunately, he didn't take that route. But David's response is what I really want to center in on. Not his sin, but his response to Nathan coming to him. And that response is in chapter 12, verse 13. After Nathan has given this this wonderful heart-wrenching parable of a man that had just one little sheep that he desired like an own child. He ate together with this animal. It was a friend of his children, and a rich man who had plenty of things ordered that sheep to be slaughtered to entertain a guest. And David was incensed. Nathan confronts him. You are the man. And this is David's response, verse 13 of chapter 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. 
you shall not die. In other words, David accepted the truth of what Nathan had confronted him with, and he admitted that he was wrong, that he had sinned against God. He is immediately repentant of what had been told him, what he'd been confronted with. So there was conviction, and we're not going to get into a lot of the punishment. We're going to deal with that in subsequent chapters as they unfold. But there is punishment for this sin, and there is forgiveness. But it all centers on that one response that David gives to Nathan. In spite of his immorality, in spite of his uh, having someone else murdered, he repents. And he says, you're right. I am so sorry. And Nathan assures him, yes, you're going to have to suffer some consequences of your actions. We learn that the child that Bathsheba was carrying did die, much to David's grief. But that punishment would not be of an eternal nature. That David would not ever be completely tainted with this bad event in his life but that God had forgiven him his sin. Now, I think that's very instructive, too, because there was no sacrifice offered. There were none of the ritualistic aspects that were to be gone through to get attainment of forgiveness from this mighty God of Israel. Nathan just simply told him, God has seen, he knows you're repentant, and you are forgiven. Boom. Now, this is where we get into talking about ourselves. You and I are most vulnerable to sin in our lives when we think we're in charge. When we think that whatever our place in life is, at whatever stage of life, that we have done it ourselves. We're proud of what we have done and we do not acknowledge, though we know it's true, that what we are and what we have is solely because of God's blessings. We think we are the ones in charge, just as David did. And he was very vulnerable at that point because he was not seeking to honor God in his actions toward Bathsheba. He was simply seeking to enjoy himself and to exert his power that only he could get away with. We are most vulnerable when we think we are in charge of our lives. And there is very great value, very great value in a godly person who will confront you and me. We don't like that. None of us likes to be confronted. None of us likes to be told you're wrong. What you're doing is wrong and you need to stop it. And sometimes in our lives, people have done that, and we have gotten mad. And we've rejected that to our own peril. But if there's a humility and a recognition that this person is correct, now sometimes there are people that want to accuse us of things we've never done. There's no need to give in to that. But when we know in our own hearts that what this person has told us is correct, to humble ourselves and say, you're right. You're right, and I must change. That is the mark of a good friend. In our culture now, 
one of the major mistakes seems to be, even in the evangelical church, is that the loving thing to do is not to confront somebody with their sin. The loving thing to do is not to disturb the water, not to embarrass anybody, even though you know the Bible says, God says, what they're doing is wrong. Let's don't stir things up. Let's just live our little life here. Rosaria Butterfield has written several books about this, and in her latest one, it really hit me, the statement she makes over and over again. The loving thing to do is to confront someone when they're wrong. The unloving thing to do is to ignore it, to be indifferent, to not address it. So what Nathan is doing here is truly an act of love. It's obedience to what God has told him to do. But it's also because he indeed cares for this king that he has been in his life for many years and he is willing to confront him with this. And it, it could have cost him his life. I'm sure he was aware of it. Further on in the history of ancient Israel, that did happen to prophets. The kings would torture them. They'd send them away. They'd have them killed. But Nathan was willing to risk all of that because he cared about David and he wanted to give the word of God to him. There is a choice when someone connects with us in this way to either deny it or to accept it. To deny it is just an extension of a bad kind of pride, a pride that says, no, I am in charge, I know what I'm doing, get out, or it's humility. I belong to someone else, I belong to Jesus Christ, and I have, I have dishonored him by what I have said, what I have done. I am so sorry. There is humility in acknowledging that we have been wrong and we've been confronted with it. And never forget, this is why I wanted to go in chapter 11 into chapter 12. Never forget that the Lord's response to a truly contrite child is, I forgive you. I know it's horrible. I know you have just fouled so much up, but you repented. You've humbled yourself before me. I understand. I forgive you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's all over. Let's get on with life. That is God's response to a truly contrite child. Now, looking at this more and more in terms of the New Testament and what we are taught there in addition to these basic principles of life, is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And this is something I just want to call to your attention because it shows that what David was doing was not just a very unusual situation. It's something that has plagued God's people from the very beginning. But we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, no, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul is writing to them saying, I have heard there is a man in the church there who is having sexual relationship with another person's wife, actually his father's, and that they're proud of it. And there's been no punishment. And Paul says, this is not to be. You must confront this. You must put this man out of your fellowship 
until he repents because this cannot be allowed within the people of God. He comes out very strongly against that situation. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in another letter that Paul is writing, the man is not named. We can't be 100% sure it's the same one, but I certainly think this is what Paul has in mind. And it's a little bit longer passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Paul is speaking, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. He's saying it was difficult for me to confront you about this man, but it had to be done, and I'm sorry if it caused you pain. It caused me pain, but it needed to be done. It was not an aha moment. It was not a gotcha moment. It was out of Paul's own troubled spirit that he told them to have spiritual discipline over this man until he would repent. Verse 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. The man had been put out. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The discipline is always done in love, and it has a purpose of restoration. Not total disgrace, not total shunning. If there is repentance, if there is an understanding, yes, I've done. Do not continue to punish the person. Do not continue to look down on them. Don't even bring it to mind when you see them again. It's over. It's done. Bring them back into the fellowship. Extend your love to them, for they are part of the body of Christ. I believe this is a true example of this whole business of committing something that is offensive to God, a sin, and either one person or a group being strong enough and loving enough to confront that person, to say you cannot be a part of us if you continue to live this way, the person does without the fellowship. Apparently he misses it so much he is willing to be humbled and say, you are right, I have done wrong, forgive me. And now they need to be encouraged by Paul to put their arms around him and say, brother, come on back in to the fellowship. That's all past and over. Let's move forward. An example out of the New Testament. There's also uh, a verse in James chapter 5, actually it's two verses, 19 and 20, that really emphasize the importance of someone like Nathan. Someone like Nathan. James chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. 
this is true. This is someone to be valued that is strong enough and loving enough to confront you and me and to say, you're wrong. Please stop and do what's right. Our community in Christ, as we function as a body, exercising all the gifts that God has given us, includes both offender and the person who is going to correct. So it's not that we're always on a witch hunt. We're not always looking for faults in other people. But we're convinced that someone is openly, obviously committing a sin against God and against the church family. We are to confront them. And if we are the one that is confronted, we to acknowledge the truth of what they've said and to repent and to come back in to the fellowship. How does this happen? How does this actually take place? What are the the mechanics of something like this? Well, we know that we're told if if a brother sins, go to him and and tell him if he doesn't agree to it, bring a witness. And if they still don't agree, then then bring the church. If he still doesn't agree, then, then put him out. There's that order. But what I want to deal with at the end of this lesson is really the mechanics of how all of that takes place. And I am convinced it takes place by coming to worship. By coming together with God's people and sitting under godly teaching that is from Scripture, it is held in high regard, and God applies that teaching to our hearts. Yeah, the preacher. That in our coming together to worship and we hear the word expounded, the Holy Spirit works in our minds and our hearts, and we are convicted of something in our lives that is not pleasing to God. And we don't have to make a big deal out of it. But within our own hearts and our own talking with the Lord, we need to confess, Lord, what they said was right. I am in error with this. Forgive me and help me not to do this again. So that the pastor, the expositor, the one who is bringing the word of God to us is actually our friend, though it may hurt, though it may be painful. This is the mechanics of how that operates. And it's also why worship is so important. Why we must meet together on a regular basis. It's not just so that we can say, God, we praised you, but it's to come and to praise him to fellowship with one another and to hear his truth expounded and to allow the spirit an opportunity to apply it into our lives so that we can come to him again cleansed. That's one way. The second way is the importance of daily scripture reading. It's not just so you can check a box and say, okay, I read this portion today or to tell somebody for 50 years, I've read the whole Bible. Great. Good for you. The purpose in reading scripture daily is to open our hearts once again to the Lord's teaching and to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to work through that passage to convict us of sin as we sit in our chair by ourselves. And when the Holy Spirit does that, 
I find what the tempter really loves to do is to give me a distraction, another thought. Oh, I need to take care of that. I need to put that window down. I've got to check the car. No, don't give in to it. When you were convicted in your own reading of Scripture, stop right then, get a piece of paper and a pen and write down, this is what Scripture is telling me. And then repent and ask again for God's forgiveness as his word has shown you what is right and what is not right in your life. This is how it takes place. And I think you're all familiar with a passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Scripture. That's what it does. That's what we would need to want it to do to us. Not just to find a comforting phrase, that's wonderful. But to ever be on the lookout, Lord, is this telling me something that I need to understand in my life? That hurts. That's painful. I don't like that. But it's true. That's how all of this takes place in our day. We see how it works in David's day. The deed the prophet, the response. So it happens with us, though much of it is unseen and sometimes not even involving another person. But it's because we have this unique relationship with the creator God, who is our father, that we are guided through our lives. Scripture is our friend. And the Holy Spirit is our friend. And a person who is brave enough to confront us about something that is obviously not right in our Christian life is our friend. One more passage to read, and this is the longest by far. And some of you may be wondering why I haven't already referred to it since we're talking about David and Bathsheba. Well, it's because this wraps everything up. This is an insight into a very penitent man's heart. Psalm 51, just verses 1 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Psalm 51. The superscription attributed to David after being confronted of his sin with Bathsheba. Let this ever be a psalm that is part of our hearts as we acknowledge our own need of a Savior. And if that were not enough, I did find a hymn that, again, I was not that old familiar with, but I'm going to read it. I know I'm running a little over. It's probably the spilled water. But listen to this. All my sins have been forgiven. All my sins have been forgiven. God is merciful to me. Faith has claimed the Savior's promise. Grace and pardon, full and free. O my soul, be ever praising for the great Redeemer's love. Joyous songs to him be raising unto God in heaven above. My account is closed forever. Jesus Christ has paid it all. Shed his blood my sin to cover. Paid the price to save my soul. There is now no condemnation. I am fully reconciled. What a wonderful salvation. For a sinner so defiled. How my countless sins depressed me, gave me sorrow, shame, and tears. How his wrath and anger crushed me, filled my heart with doubts and fears, but my soul cried out in anguish, called for mercy and for grace. Jesus heard my supplication, granted pardon and release. Now my soul shall live forever. No more can the foe condemn. Nothing from God's love can sever. Peace and joy are found in him. Thus I journey on to heaven. Cross death's patch joyfully. All my sins have been forgiven. God is merciful to me. David's prayer. Our prayer. What a wonderful God we worship. Let's pray. Lord, you made us, you know us, and you also understand our fallen nature to such a degree that we hate to be told that we are wrong. We like to think we've done all this on our own, that we are perfect. Yet in our hearts of hearts, we know that is far from true. Forgive us, Lord, when we have rejected those who truly loved us enough to confront us. And thank you for those who have persisted enough to love us enough to continue to say this is what God says is right. We're also grateful, Lord, for your patience with us. For this is not a one-time thing for any of us. Sometimes daily, weekly, sometimes hourly, we're aware of how much we want to think we're in control. Lord, take away all fear. Take away all doubt and darkness. Instead, replace it with that firm and steadfast knowledge 
that you are the Lord who has loved us, has provided a way of salvation for total forgiveness of sins, for eternal life, and you will keep your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.